Awaken Beauties, finally, it's here. The truth to empower women to true inner beauty through a healthy mind and inner biology. I am your hostess, Cassandra Keel, a 20-year salon owner, organic beauty product formulator, positive mind management, and clinical hypnotherapist. And I am here to help you stay sane, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Sponsored by evokebeauty.com. E-V-O-Q-Beauty.com. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to the Awaken Beauty Podcast. I am Cassandra, your organic beauty, positive mind management, and clinical hypnotherapist. And today you are in for a treat. This man is incredibly powerful and has a powerful message to share with us off. But I want to start off with a couple of thoughts for you. And I want to ask you what comes to your mind when I say anti-aging or menopause? And chances are you have a negative bias thought pattern or the thought instantly arrives on how you are fearful of these two milestones in a woman's life. Could the growing epidemic of chronic illnesses such as an autoimmune disease, Crohn's disease, or anxiety and depression be an expression of cultural patterning? Many women have been socialized to believe that their sensuality is wrong, their emotions are inappropriate, and their physical body is shameful or to be hidden, let alone feeling invisible as they age. So what if you were presented the applied science to prove that your inner and outer ecosystem of beliefs and biological health are areas you can shift so that you can instantly step into a brighter, beautiful, and richer life? more than you could have ever imagined. Well, you know, I'm here with you to radically shift the conversation of beauty and wellness as we awaken and move and choose a new reality. And that's why we're here to explore today with our guest, Dr. Martinez. And if you are an outlier, you will really want to tap into this episode. Now, real quickly about Dr. Martinez is Dr. Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist who specializes in how cultural beliefs affect the health and longevity. He proposes based on credible research that longevity is learned and causes of health are inherited. He has studied healthy centurions worldwide and found that only 20% can be attributed to genetics. The rest is related to how they live and the cultural beliefs they share. So he is the author of the best-selling book, in which I highly recommend getting, The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success which teaches his theory and practice of biocognitive science to the general public. So in this incredible episode, Dr. Martinez joins us to explore how epigenetics, beliefs, and consciousness may be the path to a long and well-lived life in today's transitioning world. So I want to welcome Mr. Dr. Martinez himself. Thank you so much for being on the Awaken Beauty podcast on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me over. 
Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think to kick it right off, I often use the term the 80-20 rule. And a lot of times when I speak with women about, you know, the power of their health, and it really taps into what you educate and you kind of have found in your research that, you know, 20% is genetics and 80% is lifestyle. So maybe you can just start us off and kind of help us understand the first, the term, what is biocognitive science? Okay, that's a good question. Biocognitive science is a word that I had to invent to bring together culture, mind, and body, because science, uh, especially mind-body science, it's very clear that, that the mind and the body influence each other. It's very well known, and there's a lot of research that shows that, that your thoughts affect your biology, biology affects your thought. What was missing, I think, is the cultural component, that things don't happen mind-body in a, in a void, they happen in a cultural context. So from the day we're born, we're, we're, we're born into a culture and we're born into belief system. And what is a culture? Basically a culture is all the things that are important that, are, that a group believes, aesthetics, ethics, longevity, wellness, all the things that are important that a group believes. So the best way to put that together is to look at the world as a potential for multiple interpretations. And your culture will build a fabric around the world. And what the brain picks up is the fabric rather than the world. So, and, and, and as we go along, I'll, I'll explain why, why that happens. But if you can see that, then you can understand that cultures are very different. Uh, and cultures actually affect even your longevity. Uh, if a culture, for example, middle age is 45 you're already programming yourself and designing yourself. At 45, you, you've been around half of the time, and then you're going downhill from there. And that's what happens with many people when they reach uh, what I call the portal of, of uh, middle age. Uh, not only do they start changing because that's what they believe, but the culture will admonish you and put you back into that fishbowl. So if you, if you turn 45 and, and that's middle age, and you begin to think non-middle age and you say well i think i want to go back to school and get a degree immediately you're going to be told well look you're middle age you have to start saving for your for your retirement so you can go to a nursing home and be able to afford it uh don't do that and and, and outliers will say wonderful you want to go back to school what do you want to major in that's what i try to create outliers people that live agelessly and it's not just some kind of wishful thinking that's how centenarians live centenarians i study centenarians who live healthy, not centenarians who are in, in nursing homes vegetating. Centenarians, who many of them live alone, many of them live with their families, but they're cognitively intact and they're superstars. So that's what I teach and that's why I call it um, that you're actually learning longevity. You're learning cultural longevity and the causes of health are inherited. So that's a little bit of what I do. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. And, you know, I often talk about with clinical hypnotherapy, you know, there's this division, the great divide between um, the critical factor filter and consciousness being fully present in our lives and then everything in our imagination where we have all these stored patterns. And, you know, to me, these centenarians really, they live a very, um, they live a very present life. You know, they're very purposeful with their words. They're very purposeful in how they see the world around them, always looking in the future, always having um, a very healthy viewpoint, which is really kind of the opposite in, you know, the U.S. And so take us back to what kind of brought you to like 
even wanting to break this open, going back and studying these individuals and what was your first passion on wanting to bring to, um, you know, the business world or the world in general? What drew, what drove you? Uh, usually science works out of dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. So I was very dissatisfied with what, what I learned in neuropsychology. I was told that, um, that the brain, uh, when, when there's damage, after about a year of rehabilitation, nothing else works. Uh, we learned also that that neurons don't grow. You have a certain amount of neurons and, mm -hmm. and many other things. And we learn now the plasticity of the brain. We know that neurons continue to grow. We also know that we transfer information epigenetically, which means from what we learn in the environment, not only do we affect our gene expression, but the offsprings also are affected. So people that were, they have... Um, ancestors that were in, in concentration camps during World War II, for two or three generations, the offsprings will have very high level of cortisol, even though they haven't been in concentration camps. So that's an epigenetic transfer. So this is why we have to be very careful what we do. Not only do we affect our gene expression, but we can pass it on to, to our offsprings. So those are the things that, that led me to see that there's more to the science that we were taught in the reductionistic science and it was fascinating because then we have a lot of um, power in what I call what's called agency, which it's not used very much in, in medicine or psychology, but in anthropology, agency is really important, which means the awareness that you have of how you contribute to change. So how you contribute to things. And, and agency has to do with empowerment. It has to do, if you feel helpless and if you feel, if you feel the world is doing things to you, you're not only gonna feel helpless, but your whole immune system will become helpless. So for example, when you're into a helplessness, it's not just stress. Your immune cells, especially the natural killer cells that, that fight cancer and other things, not only reduce in, pub, in uh, population, but they reduce the power that they have to, to uh, deal with uh, pathogens. So it's a, it's a global um, type of uh, bioinformational helplessness that puts you more into the possibility of, of not only picking up what's out there, like, for example, Corona and so forth, but also triggering a genetic predisposition from family illnesses, yeah. which is only a predisposition. Not, it's not a, a genetic sense. So those are some of the things that we need to be aware of. Yeah, I think I think that the, the world of epigenetics has really opened up our eyes. And I really like how you, um, excuse the word, I don't want... I use the word woo woo. So like this, you know, this bioenergetic and this part to the reductionist and kind of bring that back into balance and really bring it back to the middle is that they both affect each other and play with each other. And, you know, there's this very, there's a very silent ecosystem that, you know, I think, you know, if we go into the coronavirus, you know, people couldn't sleep. They didn't know really what was going on. And even though they were safe in their homes, they had food, you know, this, this super consciousness of this fear and this overwhelm of unsuredness um, also creates a culture, you know, is really fascinating to see that go from a very micro to a macro. And even though you have your fundamental needs met, your whole body is shifting. You can't sleep at night because there's an unnervedness in your ecosystem. So you talk about, you know, you know, we can maybe kind of frame that up and then also um, talk about these different archetypes that you have tapped into and, and really how we can take the power of um, the words that and or 
the emotions that you share with shame and betrayal and abandonment and the antidote words to that that have shown to increase IgG and these immune boosters so that women and men can really feel empowered and so that their families can be empowered to how we can take our consciousness at captive right now. Yes, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. And it's a very helpful question, I think, to clarify. Um, what I found in studying cultures, different cultures in Africa, South America, Asia, all over, is that uh, there are three ways that, that a culture will wound you mm-hmm. or hold you back from getting away and becoming what Jung called individuating, becoming yourself. And the reason is that it comes way back from, from many thousands of years where in our, in our uh, collective beliefs, we had to live in order to help each other. And that was necessary. And as a child, it's necessary for you to be in a collectivist uh, type of mindset because you can't make it on your own. But then when you become an adult and you want to individuate and you want to do things that may not necessarily help the totality of where you live, then the culture has learned to uh, try to wound you, not consciously, uh, in three ways. They either abandon you emotionally, physically, intellectually. They shame you or they betray you. Mm-hmm. And you take that wound with you and then you begin to live it uh, very consciously, especially if you have been abused by someone that loves you. Because we have, we have been designed to pay attention to what I call culture editors. And these are the people that have to do with our survival and people that we love. So from the moment you're born, you're designed to go to the breast or go to the, to the bottle to, to feed yourself. So it's very important. And those people become very powerful in shaping our reality. Mm-hmm. But let's say that you have a culture editor, a father or a mother, who abandon you emotionally. Uh, and it has to be in a pattern, not just once. But let's say you, you go to school and you see all the little kids, um, their moms are there and your mom's not there. And consistently your mom is late. You never know your mom is coming. So what you learn, not consciously, is that love has to be related to abandonment. You entangle right. the wound around love. So right. then you look for love to either abandon or be abandoned because that's what you know. And each of the wounds can have very negative consequences, especially shame, which shame causes inflammation. When someone shames you, you can have molecules of inflammation as if there's some kind of pathogen out there because the immune system is biosymbolic. The immune system listens to a symbolic brain. Why would a word like, uh, you're so stupid, that's a word. How could the immune system respond as if there's some kind of pathogen out there because it's biosymbolic. Once we had language, it had to learn the symbols of the language that animals don't have. Before uh, we had the, uh, the epigenetics of, for example, an animal, you give them uh, rats, you give, them, you give one poison and the other one not. And then when they, when they start grooming and they get together, they pass that information to each other and neither of the rats will eat that poison again, nor will they, the off, offsprings. So that's a lot of epigenetics. We lost that with language because now we can say, don't eat that, that's poison. Mm -hmm. So then in order to adjust, the immune system had to also become biosymbolic and respond to the biosymbols, which are words. So somebody says, you're stupid and you're shamed. And then when you're shamed, you have inflammation. So what, for example, I worked with a lot of women who have fibromyalgia, uh, MS, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune illnesses that have to do with inflammation. Many, many of them have been abused in a way that shame 
is the uh, the archetypal wound that they have, and that has to be worked in, along with conventional medicine in order to clear out the the consciousness that continues to create inflammation. So you can have an anti-inflammatory medication, which will suppress the immune system, but then if you have that consciousness, it's going to be very difficult to get rid of it as a way of, of resolving. But as you said, each of the wounds I found that has an antidote. The wound of abandonment has the antidote of, of commitment. For shame, it has honor. And for betrayal, it has loyalty. But this is loyalty to yourself, uh, uh, commitment to yourself, and honor to yourself. Because the way to look at uh, these wounds is that you have been disempowered by a wound. Right. And the way you empower yourself back is with the antidotes. So yeah. that's kind of the idea. And in the books, I explain how to do it and, and how to actually... Uh, make uh, anti-inflammatory consciousness with honor. I've worked with uh, people with arthritis and other kinds of problems using that, and it's very helpful. And in addition to conventional medicine, it doesn't it doesn't replace, but it integrates conventional medicine with uh, biocognition. Yeah, I just I love that so much. And there's so much research and science pointing to this very truth. You know, um, your research, uh, Joe Dispenza, I, work I do with hypnotherapy. When you can, when you become aware, you turn on the consciousness. And I've heard also you say that even within 15 minutes, your IgA immune system will be able to reboot itself and start to boost itself after you start initiating these practices that you teach. Um, so I think with all of this, this mindfulness, it can be very, very confusing for people to truly understand, like, how do I really tap into and really start to, I'm going to use this language, unfuck the brain. Right. So <laughs> I'm just going to be I'm blatantly honest, but it doesn't, it, we make it so hard. And I yes. think we definitely need someone to help lead us in the right, true and correct way and create a space for us to be open and safe. You know, if we go back to women, one of the biggest things for them is they need to feel safe. And I think all women experience shame and it's partly inbred into societal ways that women often feel shame. So honor you know, I love that putting on your crown of honor is to a way to walk tall and, and remove the shame. But for me, it's, it's really, we have to unlearn the things that we've learned. The body needs to unlearn them. The mind needs to unlearn them. That allows us to become conscious in our life and remove those old patterns. So can you give an example of how you direct this? Just give us one example of how you direct this in the book that someone can get a better understanding of how you can turn on these immune boosters by unlearning these old patterns. Well, a lot of authors will say, read my book, but I think uh, it, it's, it's a lot better to explain and, and actually give something uh, for people that they can use that they don't have to read the book. So, but first it's important. I think you brought up something very important. Affirmations by themselves don't work because there's no unlearning. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're putting something over something without fixing it. So yeah. if you say, I'm wonderful, I'm wonderful, I'm wonderful. You have neuro maps that say you're not, it's not going to work. Right. So the way to unlearn is with these methods that I developed. So for example, you have a, uh, a shaming wound. And you have lived that, that shame all your life, and you happen to have fibromyalgia, or you happen to have some kind of immune problem, uh, autoimmune, and you walk into a room, and you're going to be uh, you're going to be presenting something, but you're late. Mm -hmm. And the person who is running the meeting is a shaming person, mm -hmm. and they say, "Oh, there you go, there you are again. I can always count on you being late in front of other people." 
and you turn red and you overreact. Mm-hmm. What that means is you're dumping your whole history of shame into that moment. Yep. At that moment, you begin to actually turn red. You're secreting all kinds of processes. You're, you're creating histamines yep. and opening up for, for different, like IgEs as if you had some kind of a, an allergy. So the moment that you stop and say, okay, now I am in a, in a, in a wound of, of shame. Let me stop. What is the honorable thing that I can do for myself now? First, you have to embody the manifestation of the wound. So you have to, how does it feel? Well, I'm feeling red around my throat. I'm feeling um, tension around my chest and whatever. And then you observe that. And the mind-body code to get rid of something is not, I want to get rid of it. It's observation. Mm-hmm. And once you release that and you say, okay, now, and you could do that in five seconds. How, what is the honorable thing that I need to do now to get out of my shame? The first thing would be, all right, you're absolutely right. I'm late. Uh, I'll talk to, to you about this later. And let me make up the time. So honorable. Later, you talk to that person and you say, look, um, I'm a professional. I admit that I was uh, late, but don't do this to me again in, in front of other people because this is not the way that I want to deal with you. So one of the ways that you have to really work on the wound is you have to set limits with people so they don't continue to abuse you. Mm-hmm. And you have to set limits and give people permission to not like it. That's yeah. assertiveness requires two steps. No and get permission for people to not like it. Mm. As you do that, then you begin to really change. You, you, as you said, you unlearn the response to uh, shaming, and you learn with a response of honor. Then for the rest of the day, in order to reinforce those new uh, neuromaps, you act honorably for the rest of the day. What are the honorable things that I can do for me for the rest of the day? What are the honorable things that I can create into my consciousness? Then you unlearn and relearn. So that's specifically some techniques that you can use. Yeah, I, I just, I love that. I just love it so much because you really are, you know, I know you, you use the word recontextualize and, and, and sort of reframing or what have you, but you're really embodying honoring yeah. yourself and yes. letting go of the old pattern. So you're acknowledging it, you're creating the awareness, there's consciousness because you can't create life that is conscious out of amnesia and denial and you're stepping into embodying one simple word the rest of your day honor i honor myself in this decision right now i honor myself to take a breath and take a breather and realize that her going off on me being two seconds late is probably because she's feeling pressure because she has to put on a show but i honor myself to show up presently and deliver the truth that I want to give. There's so many different framing that you could yes. do with that. I just love it yes. so much, but it's simple. It's simple, but there's a lot of neuropsychology and psychoneurology yes. going on. But the important thing, as you said, is that you have to embody also the, you embody the, uh, the shame, but you, you also embody how it feels to, to be honorable. Mm-hmm. And then that I have found clinically that that kind of honor consciousness shifting actually reduces inflammation. Yep. working with people with fibromyalgia and so forth. And we're, we're beginning to look into it to, to take it to the lab so we can actually see the reduction of inflammatory molecules during the honor consciousness. Because every, every emotion has, it's not difficult to understand, every emotion has hormones mm-hmm. and immunological responses. So if you shift one for the other, there's going to be a, a psychoneurological change as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened is that psychoneurology and, and just conventional medicine uh, was studying stress, only stress, the stress hormones. 
cortisol, norepinephrine, epinephrine, that was it. And then one study was done by uh, a student of my mentor, George Solomon, who was the one who came up with psychoimmunology award. And she divided the study. She had asked people to write about things that were shameful and to write about things that were uh, guilt inducing. And not only did she measure stress, uh, like the, the uh, cortisol and so forth, but she also measured one of the uh, molecules that causes inflammation. And by doing that, she found something very, very interesting that guilt doesn't cause as much inflammation. So if they didn't have the inflammation measurement, they would have said, okay, look, guilt is okay, uh, or, or, or shame is all right, because there's no, there's no uh, stressful cortisol as much right. as guilt. And what they found actually is that, that shame is worse than guilt. It actually causes more problems because it's not affecting the stress hormones as much, but it's affecting the inflammatory, which is even worse. And that's the first time that they began to see, okay, now we're not only going to look at the stress hormones, but let's look at the pro-inflammatory molecules that can actually cause things that are worse than stress. Okay. So you're, you're, you're removing the hormones aside because those we've studied and there's specific molecules in the anti-inflammatory or in the inflammatory pathway that have different variants of degree based on the different emotions, shame, betrayal, abandonment, and all these others, correct? Yes, and, and the, the most that has inflammation is the, uh, because it's interesting that each of them has a different kind of uh, profile. Right. So Frank, abandonment is the most primitive. Right. Because if you leave a child alone, they die. That's mm -hmm. the most primitive. Mm -hmm. Shame is a little bit more complex because a child can only be, can be shamed when they see themselves in the mirror and they can say, that's me, when they have a me identity. Before that, they can't be shamed. And people will say, well, you can shame a, at six months old, no, you're scared of them. You're not shaming them. Yep. But once you have an identity, then you can right. shame. So right. shame is the second one. And the, and the most difficult, most complex is betrayal because betrayal is a tricking. So uh, abandonment is felt cold. When you initially abandon, there's a coldness and there's a tendency for a lot of the adrenaline and noradrenaline to be released and it constricts your vascular system. That's why people get cold because it's constricting. And there's some correlation, not cost, but correlation to immune or problems that have to do with under immunity, mm -hmm. like cancer, inflammation, things like that. It's not a cost, but it's a, it's a correlation. Uh, shame is hot rather than cold. Shame, yep. people turn, they don't turn cold when, they, when they're shamed, they get hot. And the uh, emotion is uh, an emotion of embarrassment. Abandonment is isolation. Shame is embarrassment. And the relationship to that is correlation is autoimmune kinds of things. And one of the thinking about it is that when you have a lot of immunological inflammation and there's no pathogen out there, the immune system can, can get a little confused and then starts acting in an autoimmune way because it doesn't know where to go. There's an inflammation here, but there's no pathogen. So that's one of the theoretical possibilities. Uh, and then the betrayal is also hot, but it's not like shame. Betrayal, the main emotion is anger because okay. you have been tricked. And you can share it with a child. You can say, uh, oh, look at my iPhone. Can you, you want to play with it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, sing a little song for me first. And then after the child sings, I can't give you the phone. They don't get shamed. They get angry mm -hmm. and they turn red from anger, not from histamines. Mm -hmm. And there's a correlation with that with uh, cardiovascular problems and strokes. Correlation, not cause. Mm -hmm. So each of them has a, some kind of uh, biological correlate 
but also each of the antidotes has a biological healing process that can help tremendously in, in addition to other kinds of medicine or interventions that people have. Profound. I just love it. I just love it. You know, it's like we have human minds to try to understand our innate body and it's taken us this long to like actually isolate a yes. molecule versus hormones to figure out the antidote. And, you know, I love how you framed up, you know, hot from embarrassment versus hot from anger. They are very two different energetics. And one question I, that came up to me is going over um, David Hawkins' um, you know, his whole profile of different emotions and the energetic states from high to low. And have you ever correlated any of the emotional energetics compared to his um, model versus what you're experiencing and discovering? No, what I, what I try to do, I try to stay away from energy, just in my, my way, because then you have to define what kind of energy it is. Sure. Is, it, is it electromagnetic? Is it yep. uh, gravitational? And rather than that, for me to explain it better, I, I see it as bioinformation. Yep. The biology and the information coming together have energy responses, but it could be with, uh, in the case of the brain, it's, a, uh, it's an, an electrical process. In the case of uh, the heart, it's a different process. So, so bioinformation is cleaner to me in looking at how you can actually explain things without having to come up with an energy unit to measure or not measure so that I, I stay away from that, and, and I use it. I I call it bioinformation, basically. And with bioinformation, then you can do some interventions that that you can wrap your head around, and you can actually see. Let me give you an example. Uh, what's called the, the phantom limb mm -hmm. um, is we. If you look at your body and your mind as some kind of hologram, like you are a hologram, your mind, your brain will put into time and space in bioinformation so let's say you lose your arm and some people that lose their arm have uh, an experience that's called called the uh, phantom limb yep. they actually it itches in, a, in an area that no longer exists because there are neural maps that extend to that even though there's no physicality there. that's a bioinformational uh, example mm -hmm. i really love that yeah and i like i, I really appreciate it because it grounds it you know, someone that tries to sell things based on understanding energetics, you know, trying to get that through the front door is very hard for people to wrap their head around, but the mind is always looking for proof. And so I really love the research that we can, like I said, really bring back to the middle between the woo and the actual, um, you know, hard, hard science and kind of bring it yes. all back to the center. And that's, it's really no, this is wrong or this is right. It's just how do we actually put it on paper so that sure. we can explain the story to individuals. And so thank you for that. And, and just wanted to talk about a couple of things, um, you know, about how you bring in this into companies and our transitioning, but, and about the cave theory. But before I do, I wanted to tap into this because we are Awakened Beauties on this podcast. Can you just share a little bit about, you know, what you found the differentiation when you, when women experience, you know, the whole experience around menopause in South Africa versus Asia? I just thought this was really, really fascinating. That, that is, uh, and um, what I found is that, uh, Many of the medical models see that as a process that, that is looked at negatively because you have to have hormone replacement and you have the hot flashes and you have to take medication for the hot flashes. And it's got a whole process there that is negative. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And, and in South America, there's some, some countries that actually they call, they call the hot flashes bochorno, which means shame. And the doctors will even say she's having symptoms of shame, even though they know it's hormonal and that. Mm-hmm. So what's happening? They're having a higher level of inflammation. They're having lower self-esteem. They're losing their sexuality. They're having more hormonal kinds of problems. And you would think, well, it's got to be the biology. It's just the, the process of biology changing the body and all that. No, it's not. It's cultural. You go to Japan and other places, especially Japan, they call it koninki, which means a second spring. I just love that. Women, when they go into that, and, and they hardly have the hot flashes, they uh, don't have that hormone uh, issue with uh, imbalances, and their self-esteem goes up because they become a source of knowledge for the community. So it's biocultural, not biological. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so profound. And I feel like there's a lot of women authors coming out and really, you know, standing on that, whether it's their sexuality or this or that. But, you know, I always tell women, it really truly is a second spring. And so thanks for framing that up. I just really wanted women to capture that and how it creates an immune reaction in the body. Um, and to, you know, hmm. the, the Asian women really look at that as being a role model to the younger women. Great wisdom. I have a friend, Danny Katz, who wrote a book and we had a, a conversation on a podcast that said, you know, women in, in Europe, they say, I, you know, I'm 43 years and, you know, it's, it's a different framing. I'm, I'm, you know, 30, I'm 45. I'm trying to remember how she phrased it, but it was outside of the framing of how old I am. It's, it's, she had an empowered statement behind it. And just those tweaks really, really change it up. Now, moving forward, you know, obviously the coronavirus and kind of was talking about earlier, you know, we've kind of been put into these and what you explained is the cave um, and the cave consciousness. Can you kind of tap into and help us kind of understanding now that we're talking about culture and how powerful it is, man, are we transitioning right now? Can you talk about the cave consciousness? Uh, I think it's a great thing because Mm -hmm. what happens is we tend to use what works in one place everywhere we go. And now with the quarantining and all these kinds of things where you have to spend more time at home, we take the external world into what I call the cave and it doesn't work. Uh, You can't just be on the news constantly. You can't be doing all the things that you used to do. So what happens when there's a shift in adversity, several things happen. One is your expectations are changing. The terrains, I call them terrains. Your expectations are changing because you you no longer go to work. You don't see people at work and have meetings with them. Expectations change. Attachments change. The attachments that you have to your office, the attachments that you have to all these other things. So that changes too. And the other thing that change, changes is your, your view of how things are going to happen in, 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 in your world. So then knowing that, you have to then detach and reattach to the cave. And you have to change your expectation. But the way to do it is you go back again to your epigenetics. As homo sapiens, we have at least 150,000 years of trial and error. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of cave consciousness that it's in our epigenetics. So what do we do? An example. We know that fire was very important in the cave. You never put your back to the opening of the cave and you had a fire. The fire was good for cooking, to keep animals away, to keep the lights on and all of that. That's all epigenetically in your DNA and everything. So what do you do? The first thing you do 
is that you begin to have dinners with candlelights mm -hmm. and you bring that in. So that has an epigenetic value of reducing the stress mm -hmm. and actually getting it. That's what I do every night, uh, candlelights. And it's beautiful because then you bring cave consciousness in. Mm -hmm. But you also, in cave consciousness, you don't check the news every day or every moment. You could check it in the afternoon once to make sure what the, the world's not coming to an end and then you let it go. So then you create rituals that are cave specific. But the good news is that once you're out and you get back out of, uh, out of the cave consciousness, you do two things. What can I bring with me from the cave back to the forest, which will be more candlelit dinners? But what do I drop that I don't really need? And a lot of businesses are finding out that 70% of their employees can work from home that they don't have to be because it's that industrial mentality of, of bricks and mortars. And we're in the information now where you can work from anywhere. Steve Jobs was able to beat up uh, IBM from his dad's garage because it's information. Not uh, So what I'm doing is I'm looking at what are the rituals that I had outside of the cave that I don't need anymore? What are the things that I can do? And what are the things that I can bring from the cave that were very effective for me? And what you'll find is that one of the things in the cave is you hopefully would do a lot of introspection, meditations, mm -hmm. reflect on your life, what has quality and what hasn't. And then you don't go back to the rat race and have lunch with your uh, iPhone and dinner with your iPad and you change behavior. And then the isolation became a source of wisdom rather than an adversity. Mm, I love that. It's very, 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 very powerful. And I think we've all experienced that. And and, you know, you can see that, and I experience it with my clients, they're apprehensive to going back to work because we all are very conscious now of what rat race that was and how it really kept us from our deeper inner knowing and being able to tap into that calm, quiet, powerful, peaceful mind um, that's available to us through these ancient ritual type patterns. Um, you know, ritual is very different than a regime. It, you know, even yes. saying the two different words is very, very different in how it feels in the body. Um, so rituals are really key there. So thank you for sharing that. I, I think everybody will definitely reflect on that. And then the last thing I wanted to discuss is, you know, I shared with you in creating programs for women and for salons. And so I really think about the culture. Now, keep in mind, my salon is called Beauty Ecology Organic Salon because I really believe in the whole ecosystem and how we have a culture here. And so you will tend to go into organizations, fortune companies, and help them understand, you know, there's one part of creating mission vision, but it's the culture that is created from these words and the experiences for, um, you know, the workers and, and going from cave mentality to work mentality. It's very a, a stressful atmosphere. Can you tap into how you, um, how you step into a company and help them reorg with this mindset? All right. Well, the, uh, here's where, where I bring cultural anthropology in uh, with psychonominology. You could have a, a, a Fortune 100 company with 100,000 employees or a small company with, uh, with five employees. It's the same principle. Mm -hmm. The first thing that, that I teach is that the CEO or the head is the one who sets up the policy, which is another way of saying sets up the perception of what's going to happen. They could have mission statements and vision statements, but the, what they bring in from their culture is what's going to be communicated. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I have them do is identify, I explain what archetypes are, and I have them identify what is the archetype that you're bringing to work. For a head of a, of a company, 
the archetype has to be visionary. You can't come in as a mother because you create children. You can't come in as a, as a, as a um, lover because you create uh, uh, sexual problems. Uh, you can't come in as a child because you create more children or daddies. And I see that in big companies, huge companies, multi-billion dollar companies, where the CEO is a daddy and he has children and he doesn't understand why they don't make uh, their own decisions. So that's the first thing you do. You have to figure out what archetype. And when you finish at work, you have to leave that archetype at work. So can you give me an example of archetypes that you help them create to stay away from these structures of codependency and, and whatnot? Okay. Well, again, going back developmentally, for 150,000 years, our system, our homo sapiens have been testing what works here, what doesn't work there. For example, right. we know that a hammer works better than a screwdriver when you're trying to hammer a nail. Right. But if you're trying to screw something, you need a screwdriver. Same thing with the archetypes. By trial and error, we found, or, or we have found as homo sapiens, that the best archetype for children when you're an adult is either father or mother. It can't be lover, it can't be anything else, because then it's like a screwdriver trying to hammer something. Sure. And there's biology there. If you have a, a incestuous kind of relationships, what happens is that your immune system begins to create people with retardation. So the biology goes against that. And what I do with, uh, with heads and CEOs and so forth is, okay, visionary is good, but when you go home, uh, you have to go into the partner archetype. Husband, wife, partner. That's the archetype. If you have children, you have to be mother, father. You can't be visionary. You can't be teacher. And the way that I began to practice that, I was working in a neuropsychiatric hospital, and I was working as a healer doctor or so forth, and I was taking that home. And my kids didn't need a healer doctor. They needed a father. Mm. So what I did in order to shift archetypes, and this is a good technique you could use, once you leave your archetype, you have to know what your archetype is, then... What I did is I would go to the parking lot and I would turn my car on and you have to have some sensory input. Right. So the sound of the car would say, okay, no more doctor, now father. In my driving home for 30 minutes, I was practicing father consciousness. When I got there, they had a father, not a healer. Mm-hmm. And it made tremendous difference. But the other thing is that if, you're, if you keep one archetype in all areas, it's very easy to get sick. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to break down like a using the handle of a screwdriver to hammer something. Eventually, the, ham, the, the handle will break. That's what happens to us. And what I found in working with executives is that many executives have gastrointestinal problems. Mm-hmm. And just by shifting archetypes and knowing what they are and knowing in what context to use them, many of them get rid of those kinds of stress-related problems because they're using archetypes that are dysfunctional. And we tend to use what works everywhere, and it doesn't. We, we have trial and error 150,000 years, so use the right archetype in the right context, and then your biology will adjust to the context. So in that framing, do you generally just use the simple archetypes? When you go home, and if you're a father, then you become um, a, a husband and a father. When you're at work, you're a visionary, and you create these... Um, you know, basically these anchors as you're shifting through your day um, and through your life, because um, we are many things, right? We are many things. And I, yeah. and I, can, ha- I can raise my hand and, and say, I'm always in visionary mode because I'm a quick start. And on the, 
on the wealth dynamic system, I'm a star. So I'm always living in the future and I, I have to really take time to ground myself down. So I have to be very mindful of that. So basically what you're doing is, is you're helping them lead at work and not get mixed up in these, these different areas of codependencies or getting sick because you could just get overdriven on one on one battery, um, where, okay. So the main archetypes then there, there's no mystery, but you're a mother, you're a father, you're a visionary. Um, you know, what are some other ones? You can get into the prostitute archetype, for example, and it doesn't mean sexual. The, the, the prostitute archetype is the one that I'll do anything I need to do in order to get this. So mm -hmm. what happened is you're selling your soul. And yep. sometimes Sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can say, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice for this. But if you live in that archetype, then it's not good. Right. Because it's always selling out, selling out, selling out. The uh, joker archetype. You think that you become a, a head of a company and you think that the joker is what, what's needed. You're not taken seriously. Everything is a joke. Everything is funny. It's funny in some areas, but it's not funny somewhere else. So, for example, a good visionary never manages they delegate. They never the, the visionary does not manage. The visionary is always ahead of their time to see what needs to happen, how do they need to expand. The managing is done by managers, not by executives. And the good companies uh, create empowerment where people manage themselves like the immune system does. The immune system doesn't, a, uh, a neutrophil doesn't ask the brain what they need to do. They know what to do, but they don't exceed their abilities. Once they can't go as far as they need to, or more than they need to, then they know how to call in other parts. That's what delegating comes in. So okay. that's what I teach, the immune system function in organizational science. I, okay, that now makes complete sense of how the immune system knows what to do. And a healthy immune system in a healthy company, everybody knows their parts, knows their place on the bus, and functions out of their battery because that is just how they're gifted, how they, how they best you know, how they best utilize, um, you know, their gifts. So that makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much for that. And do you teach that in any of your books? Um, I, uh, the, the first two books uh, are really more on mind, body, science, and the culture. But I, I do have a website. It's called the empowerment.org, uh, which is really biocognition applied to organizational science. Okay. And uh, I haven't written a book on that, but I've done a lot of work with many companies and, uh, and I have also diplomates that I do on, on empowerment code. Mm -hmm. So it's a diplomate on organizational science to teach people how to, how to apply this, these principles and to really get to the point quickly because you can operationalize things very well. And you can see, uh, for example, uh, I teach the way that the immune system makes decisions is that you have, I always use a neutrophil because that's the first line of defense. Well, the first line of defense actually is, is the skin. If something goes through the skin, then the neutrophils come out. These are little uh, cells that come out and they can look for pathogens. And, and once they find something, they go there and that becomes the brain there. It doesn't go to the brain and ask questions. It, it knows what to do. But when it exceeds its abilities, when it can't deal with, let's say, a cancer cell or something else, it stops and it goes through distributed control. It looks for T cells and for the interferons and other things to come in. And they pull away and they become a neutrophil to go somewhere else. And that is one of the problems that you find when people don't do the shifting, they become control freaks. 
and they want to accumulate the control because they're afraid of losing it. So we teach how to keep your control only when you need it, and you're going to lose it when you don't need it. And we force people to give it up when they don't need it. So those are things that forcing in a way that uh, I'll give you an example. I was working with a company in, in the Philippines mm-hmm. and the head of finances was a control freak, mm-hmm. control, control, control. When she wasn't there, nothing happened on the finances. And usually people that are over controlling don't have a very good family life. Mm-mm. They don't have a balance. So she, all she could do was control. She, yeah. she would nourish her control. So what we did is we said, look, you have a, here's an opportunity that you have. You're going to have to, they don't take vacations either. You're going to have to take a vacation. You haven't taken a vacation. Anymore. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. Because if you don't, we're going to fire you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need a vacation and you have three weeks to begin to delegate. So when you leave, people will have control. Well, she got an, almost an anxiety attack. She worked through it. She was able to uh, delegate. She went on vacation. And you cannot call work. Not allowed to call work. If you call work, you're fired. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. She came back later and her control was given back to her and allowed to delegate. The problem was solved because she knew that she could get her control back, but not the obsessive control, but only the control she needed. And then she learned to delegate because she had evidence that she wasn't there and the sun came up the next morning, even though she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So it's a narcissistic kind of thing that you got to learn to, that the world doesn't revolve around you. So those are examples of the things I do with corporations. I just love that. I think that there's a whole entire space and I, I, I really love the story behind it. Uh, I could really step into that story. I could identify who I was right away. I could also identify how I've changed those different archetypes through my career. And, and you know, I've had my own health breakdown because I was trying to control everything. But I dream and I've hired many VAs and I've tried to hire VAs and delegate. And it's not that I don't want to, I want to give all of that power away, but I think that it's really important. And I really appreciate that there's so many companies now coming up that are creating VA, um, you know, small systems so that small business owners or what have you that don't have that kind of, um, backing financially to be able to delegate to find people that can help them to delegate and then like you said is is the power to give up the control um so yeah i think that's really really profound and and speaks loudly to me and i think many of our listeners you know even a mother can be a controller of her ecosystem not wanting to give up anything you know let the kids feed the damn dogs when they said that they wanted a dog and we're going to feed the dog stop picking up all of their clothes you're being a controller you know so there's all these different ecosystems that we can still use these different archetypes so i think my homework from today's podcast is to really go look at the archetypes and kind of really analyze those and 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 look at those so that's really incredible thank you so much for sharing that well i have to tell you i mean just an incredible wealth of knowledge and science and you know, proven data, which I really, really appreciate is, is helps everybody take the woo to the very scientific and bring that together into a, a, you know, a very, very um, uh, middle ground. So I always ask, you know, everybody that's on the podcast, because you are on the Awaken Beauty podcast, is there anything in this really wonderful, I just, I really love this transformation our world is going through right now because I know the light at the other side. And, you know, I always I want to ask you, is there anything personally in your life that you've awoken to? Could have been yesterday, this month, Corona, whatever you want to share with us for you personally. 
Well, reminding myself of, of the power of the culture. So mm-hmm. when something is not working, what I do is I say, okay, I have hundreds of thousands of years of information. Let me see what, what, what's going on and, and what archetype am I using that's not working for me right now? Mm-hmm. What, what am I overdoing? An example, Steve Jobs was a visionary. He was wonderful, but he burned out because he couldn't shift archetypes. So uh, you could be as, as bright as, 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 as anyone, but if you don't shift archetype, it's going to be affecting you. So what I'm learning is that I am trying to identify the archetypes that work best in one area, the ones that don't work in another area, and how does my body respond? And I have found sometimes that actually you can get sick, mm-hmm. but you can also heal yourself, of course, with the help of other people, but, but also with yourself. And, and knowing that there's a tremendous amount of information that's built into your uh, DNA. The DNA doesn't control. The DNA can only allow the genes to express themselves based on the environment that you create. The DNA doesn't rule. The, the uh, uh, external or the, the parts of the, uh, for example, the membranes are the ones that have reactions, but also in your world, what rules is the horizons of your belief systems. And they have to be horizons. They can't be, um, they can't be boundaries because it's rigid. So expanding horizons on your belief system, knowing that when you go into something new, it causes anxiety and it has to be seen as curiosity anxiety, not fear anxiety. So that's yeah. one example of what I'm working on now. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. Pondering and imagination, becoming inquisitive about something totally shifts the, the rigidness of that. And that's really Powerful. Thank you so much for being on the Awakened Beauty Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's uh, a delight. uh, Everyone, you have more power than you think you do. Mm -hmm. 100%. Thank you so much. You bet. And everybody, thank you for listening to the Awakened Beauty Podcast. Make sure that you like and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, stay sane, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Well, hello, Awaken Beauty. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Were you inspired? Please leave a comment or your own personal aha moment so others can capture exactly what you did. Also, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're interested in high quality natural products for your hair, skin, and wellness, including organic, CBD, please visit evokebeauty.com. Again, that is evokebeauty.com, E-V-O-Q-beauty.com. And until next time, darling, stay sane, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Mm-hmm.